see this happen through the very first sin. Sin is not fundamentally an outward action. It is an outward expression of an inward desire. It doesn't begin with transgression of God's law, of actually crossing over the boundary that God has set. It actually begins with a thought in the heart. A thought that that comes across something like this. Does God really have my best in mind? When He put up that, those barriers for me, was that really for my best? See, we begin to question God and His Word. And so sin often comes on in slow progressions. It often doesn't take place overnight, because particularly catastrophic sins. Okay, no murderer ever decided from the time that he was a small boy that he wanted to murder for a living when he grew up. No father ever decided that he wanted to have a disastrous divorce and break up his family. It happened slowly over a long period of time. Perhaps you're thinking right now, well that that would never be me. I would never I would never be unfaithful with my spouse. I would never do something like that. But if you're thinking that way, then you are underestimating the profound wickedness of your own heart. If you think you're standing firm, take heed that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Catastrophic sins don't come by surprise. Whoa, I really blew it. I can't believe I did that. Ask Lot in Genesis chapter 19. It happens slowly. It's bad choices. It begins with a lustful thought here, a lustful look there. It turns into imagining yourself with someone else. And it'll only be a matter of time before that person becomes unfaithful to God and their spouse. But you say, well, that could never happen to me. That would never happen to me. Well, then. If you're alive and you are a son of Adam or a daughter of Adam, then you have inherited a sinful heart. And the Bible says says that there's nothing more serious or more deceitful than the human heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Satan realized this truth in Genesis chapter 3, that sin starts in the heart. And that's why he didn't take Adam and Eve and forcefully push them to the place where they're at the tree, grabbing the tree, eating from the tree. Instead, he deals with the woman's heart. He said, does God really say you may not eat from any tree? And Eve seems to have taken the trap because she begins to distort God's Word and distorting God's Word leads to a denial of God's Word And before they knew it, they both were defying God and His Word. Let's read this passage again. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The result of the first sin and the result of our sin is estrangement from God. We go to a place of fellowship with God to estrangement from God. And this is what happened with Adam and Eve. Notice in verse 7 that the very first thing that they do when they find out or when they sin against God is they hide themselves from God. We'll talk more about this next week. And ever since that first sin, we sinful humans have been hiding from God instead of, like verse 8 talks about, going to the presence of God. They, they, they now hide themselves from the presence of God because they recognize now that they are soiled before Him. And as Dr. R.C. Sproul says, the rest of history has not been marked by us pursuing God and running to God, but rather by God pursuing us. Sin brings death. Sin brings spiritual estrangement from the Holy Creator. How do we avoid this? How do we combat against the wiles of the devil, the, the the wisdom of Satan? How do we stand up under temptation? Well, I think in order to do this, we must understand our opponent and we must understand what God has given us to equip us in our defense against Him. Alright, so let's begin this evening by looking at the attack of Satan. The attack of Satan. I think this is an important place to start because how effective would you be or... an let's say, an NFL team, how, how effective would a professional football team be if they never watched any film before the game about which they were, they were to play? If they never prepared for the coming opponent in the week ahead? They never knew what kind of uh, ways that they, they carried the ball or threw the ball or what kind of schemes they had on defense. They didn't know how to counteract them. How good of a football team would they be? That's not the way football teams work, at least the good ones. They spend several hours every week breaking down film. They're looking at the strengths and weaknesses of their opponents. And generally, those who put in the time and pass that information on to their players are then able to reap the benefits of it. They generally are the ones who win the ball game. And I submit to you that the same thing should happen with us and Satan. That we should not expect to go into battle against Satan and his demons and against our own flesh, the lusts that are within our own hearts. We should not expect to go into battle without understanding our opponent. We must understand him before we can defend against his attack. Where is he coming from? I mean, this this happens in war and and in other places where there are ongoing struggles, Right? You don't just go into a battle without understanding who you're going up against. And so I think it's important for us to do this. So first of all, let's look at his goal. Look at, with regard to the attack of Satan, let's look at his goal. And that is to forget God. Turn to Job chapter 1 with me. 
because we see in the scriptures at least two ways in which um, Satan accuses. He, in fact, Satan is called the accuser in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. But there's two ways that he accuses. One is Satan accuses God before man. So when he's speaking with humans, he says God's not really as good as he says he is. That's what he does in Genesis 3, right? And the other thing, the other way that he accuses is he accuses man before God. This is something that we've seen before, so I'll just point your attention to it and we'll quickly move on. Chapter 1, verse 4 of Job. His sons used to... Uh, you know what? That's not the verse I'm looking for. Let me move down to verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So God is commending Job here. And here's where Satan um, accuses Job before God. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him on his, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse, curse you to his faith. Uh, to your face. So you see what's happening there? Satan is condemning or accusing Job before God. Oh, of course he's going to serve you when you give him all these things. But take some of those things away and see, see if you're worthy to be served. Or see if Job is a worthy enough servant to follow you when those things are gone. It's not going to happen. See, so Satan does... He commits accusations in two ways. One is man before God and the other is God before man. Here in our passage, he is an accuser of God before man. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, here's his accusation against God. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He's not letting you eat from any tree? Are you kidding me? What kind of good God is that? So, Satan's goal is to create this division, this schism between you and God. He's trying to estrange you from God. And the way that he does that is he tries to, to accuse you before God, and he tries to accuse God before you, saying that God is not that good of a God. So that is his goal. We need to recognize that in order to understand him properly. Secondly, his power. Notice who he possesses, okay, in, in the sense that demon possession, like we read about in the New Testament, okay, notice the demon possession that's taking place here, that he's possessing this animal, this serpent. He was more, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. We talked about how this worked last week. And we know from the Gospels that he and his demons have the ability to possess not only animals, but humans. And, um, in Mark chapter 5, just to give you an idea of how much power these demons have, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus comes upon a demoniac. Remember, he was in the tombs. He was cutting himself. They would try to chain him, and he would break the chains with chains with his supernatural strength. He had the power of demons within him. And in order for, for Jesus to help 
his disciples and the other people around to see how powerful these demons really were, where did he take those demons and, and send them? Do you remember? Right, into the herd of swine. Okay, and apparently it was 2,000 of them, according to the record. 2,000 swine were killed on that day as a result of this demon possession. And I believe that Christ did this in order to give a visible illustration of the power of invisible demons. See, we don't understand that as much because we don't think as much as in the angelic realm or in the demonic realm, which, uh, by the way, can be dangerous when we take too much time to think on that, by the way. But, but I think Jesus is showing, listen, there's more of a battle than going, that's going on than just the, the battle that you see. There's more going on. So let me try to give you a visible picture of what that looks like. And so he sends them into the swine. First he shows the power in the man, and then he sends those into the swine. Um, so, now, if, if those demons had that much power, be able to give this man supernatural strength, and Satan is the leader, the king of these demons, then does not Satan have even more power than they? I would put it to you this way. Satan is the most powerful creature in the universe. Okay. Now, the key word there was creature. He's a created being. God created him. As a good angel, he fell from heaven. But he is the most powerful creature in the universe. This is who we're going up against in our battle against sin. Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God, small g, of this world. Okay, you want to see his power? Look at the control, the power he has shown over this world. What other creature could take a world that was created by a loving God in a beautiful, really, landscape, and see His creation for what it is, and yet turn their hearts against the God who made them. Satan can. And he does that through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In fact, Paul says that he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Peter says that this powerful creature... Satan is prowling around like a what? Like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Seeking someone to, be, to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. So what I'm saying to you is when we talk about this battle against sin, we cannot underestimate the power of Satan. That he can overpower you with his strength. And he can outwit you with his wisdom. Okay, now... Let me just briefly say, just so you're not fearful here, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay, So God has more power than Satan. But just to give you an idea of where we're, what his power is like, his goal is to create a division between you and God. His power is the greatest of any creature in the world. His method is the next area we need to look at. And there are at least three ways that he tries to defy or divide you from your relationship with God. Sometimes Satan's methods are covert. So sometimes they're they're undercover. 
where you can't really see what he's doing. He, he kind of manipulates. He, he tries to twist the truth and things. That's what happens here. It's more of a covert operation. He, he, he um, transforms himself, Paul says, as the angel of light here, as a serpent, a loving serpent who is a cre- creature of God. But other times, Satan uses overt tactics. That he's very obvious about what he's trying to do. And um, so, so here, he's, he seems to be more covert. He begins with a question. He begins with a question that says, is God really a good God? Does He really have your best in mind? Would a good God really put that kind of restriction on you? And then he goes to more a full-on assault in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. God said you would die. I'm saying you won't. That seems pretty obvious, open. His tactic works, by the way. So, let me show you from this first sin at least three ways or three methods for how Satan tries to get you to sin. How he tries to attack your relationship to God. The first way is by defying the created order. He tries to defy the created order. Notice who he talks to in the middle of verse 1. And he said to the woman. This is a significant strategy by Satan. He approaches the woman. Now, I was going to take us to 1 Timothy 2, but we've actually already discussed this in Sunday school last week with regard to how Satan tries to get the woman in a role of either leadership over a man or in a role of teaching over a man. And so let me just briefly summarize that passage. What Paul is saying is that actually defies the created order. He says in that passage specifically, the reason that that cannot happen is because the woman was the one that was deceived, not the man. Now, in that class I explained that what my understanding of that passage is not that the woman, the women... The, the original woman and women, women in general are more naive or more gullible than men. It doesn't mean that women are more easily deceived than men. Rather, I think what what Paul is saying there is that Satan actually went to Eve instead of going to Adam. That he is defying the created order. So here's what he's saying. Adam went and deceived Eve first. He he went to Eve out of order. He should have gone to Adam. Adam was the head of the creation, at least uh, of the human uh, structure that God had set. He was made in the image of God, and he was also created first, and he was created to be the leader over the woman. And yet, who did he, who did uh, Satan go to? See what what Satan is doing is is he's subverting the very authority of God. He's trying to cut out the knees of God's created order. It should be God, man, woman, and, and what he's doing is he's going right to the woman. And now she's leading the man. So that's how um, Satan works. He often defies the created order. And so the statement by Paul is not about who's more... Uh, naive or who is more easily deceived, but rather it's about Satan's strategy. And that's what we're looking at here in in Genesis chapter 3. 
But Satan's strategy is to defy the created order. And we see this as a very subtle thing. It's not that big of a deal, right? It's not that big of a deal. If there's a person, let's say a woman, who is gifted in that area, then why not just let her teach in the church? She could teach some people some things, including men. And that may be true. But God says that actually defies the created order. And so for that reason, it is wrong. And this is how Satan often works. He tries to lead humans to do the same, to defy the created order. And we, as God's creatures, have been defying His created order ever since. We've been defying the authority structure as children. From the very time that we're young, we defy our parents. God created it to be God's parents' children, and yet we still defy our parents. We defy our government. God created it to be within within our world. God, government, us. And we defy our government. should not be this way. So Satan tries to defy the very order of God's universe. Secondly, the second method that he uses is he highlights God's restrictions. Verse 1. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, we know from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What, is, what does Satan say? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? See, so he highlights God's restrictions. It sounds like God is an oppressive God. He's not letting you eat from any tree. How could this possibly be? He's supposed to be good. See, Satan says, the reason God gave you that restriction is because He knows that life will be better for you if you eat that tree. So He's trying to withhold good from you. He knows that you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. So He's withholding it from you. The lie of Satan that often comes to us is that the life of obedience to God is often or or regularly oppressive and restrictive. Isn't that the way it is when you are commanded to do something? You know it's from God, and yet you feel it's too restrictive. That I would actually be more happy if I didn't have these restrictions on me. If I could only break free from these restrictions, I would have more liberty to do what I want, and I would be more happy. But we learn from the Scriptures that we never can prove that the lights of His love until all on the altar we lay. And it is for us to trust and obey. We are left to do what God has said. And that is difficult to, to consistently obey God, consistently submit to God, And so I would urge you, if you are now enjoying sin in this life, then you better be careful. Because right now you probably see God's prohibitions, His negative commands that you cannot do a certain thing. You probably see them as walls or barriers in your life. That they're not the best thing for you. We often pat ourselves on the back when we come to the end of our life and we repeat with Frank Sinatra that I did it my way. 
But that's not a song of life and of hope. That's a song of doom and destruction. And that is a song that will be sung by unbelievers for all of eternity. I did it my way. But it won't be something that they will be pleased about that time. Because at that time, they will spend eternity in God's never-ending death house, a place where they are always dying, what the Bible calls hell. You think that God's prohibitions are restrictive against you, are oppressive against you? Then maybe you would make a better God than He. God, move out of the way for a second here. I know what will satisfy me. I know what brings me pleasure. I don't need you to tell me what to do. And we would never say it in those terms, but that's what we do with our actions. Have you ever been sitting in a place or standing or, or participating in something, and, and as you're doing it, you're thinking, I know God has told me not to do this. That's defiance. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. That he wants you to believe that you will be more happy if you will just do it your way. You just shed God's commands and do it your way. Third way that that Satan tries to get us to sin is by denying God's judgment. Look at verse 4 again with me. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Do you realize that the very first doctrine ever denied in human history is the doctrine of God's judgment? Did God really say that living for yourself in this world will result in eternal judgment? I mean, a good God, would He ever punish you? Have you heard that today? A good God would never punish anyone in hell. That's why there can't be a hell. However, instead of questioning God's judgment here, Satan is more overt. He flat out denies it. No way. God's way too loving of a God to ever judge somebody. So if you commit this sin, Eve, you will not surely die. I'm telling you that. Because God wouldn't do that. He's too good of a God. Watch out for preaching that denies the judgment of God. Watch out for a gospel that highlights God's love only. The key word, only. And never mentions God's wrath. Watch out for that type of gospel because that is not a gospel of the Scriptures. You walk into a lot of these seeker-sensitive churches and they treat the gospel message like a sales pitch. I mean, what good salesman would ever bring up the negatives of their product or service and expect them to make a sale? They wouldn't do that. And so why would we do that when we give the gospel message? Let's just highlight all the good attributes of God. And then what that says to the, to the recipient is this. My life's okay. I've got a good God. I always have Him to fall back on. He's never going to judge me, so I'm okay. Because God's a loving God. And it's true. God is a loving God. You know that from experience. But God's also a wrathful God. God also will pour out His wrath heavily on sin. I've talked to you before about this book that's just recently come out by a pastor in our area. Rob Bell wrote a a book called Love Wins. I believe he's a pastor of Mars Hill Church. 
The book is about the fact that God could never put anybody in hell. Anybody, including the worst of sinners. He would even say that Hitler eventually makes it to heaven because God could never be that, and here's what he calls it, unloving enough to judge a person to hell. Now, that may bring more people into this church, but that will not bring any more people into the universal church. I can guarantee you that. Because the Scriptures are very clear that God will judge sin. And what Satan is saying here is, you will not surely die. God will not judge you. So in order to make the Gospel more palatable, more acceptable, kind of like the sugar that makes the, the, uh, the medicine go down, right? Then we don't talk about the judgment of God. We simply highlight all the good things. And let me tell you that that message, that message of God's love only, no judgment, contains the hiss of the serpent. When you hear a gospel message like that, when you speak a gospel message like that, that comes from the very pit of hell. In fact, it is not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is it? Jesus said, Don't fear Him who can kill the body. Fear Him who can destroy both body and soul forever. Sounds like judgment to me. Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, why... Have you, why are you not letting me enter into heaven? And you'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verses 29 and 30, For everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus doesn't sound like a very good representative of God if that's the kind of gospel message we're going to preach. If that's, not, if that's the kind of gospel message that we're going to take to our neighbors, the one that God is only loving, Jesus would not be a good representative of God if that were the case. Now, that doesn't mean that we overemphasize God's judgment. Please understand me here. Okay, Your sin is going to lead to your death and you are going to hell. Hey, that's not what I'm saying. We don't go to people like that. But it should be included in a balanced approach to the Gospel. Look at the Scriptures. See how the, the Gospel writers and the Epistle writers present the Gospel to people. How do they do it? Do they include judgment? Do they include mercy? That's how you should present the Gospel as well. God is serious about your sin. And we'll see the consequence of Adam's sin in two weeks. But did God follow through on His promise that they will surely die? Remember, this is, this is the real tension point. God says you will die if you eat of it. They ate of it. Satan says you won't die. Now, which one happened? Did they die or didn't they die? Now, it's true. They didn't die immediately, physically. But they did eventually die. Adam died at the age of 930. And that would not have happened had it been had not had it had they obeyed God. But they also died spiritually. We'll see this more in the weeks ahead as well, where God actually separates them from his presence. No longer can you be in my garden paradise. You have to be removed from it, and now you can no longer walk with me like you once did. There's always going to be a division between us until 
I restore all things to my Son, Jesus Christ. And so, what I'm saying to you is that if God followed through on His promise to them, will He not follow through on His promise to us? He will give the consequences or He will make sure the consequences for our sin are redeemed. Divine judgment is coming. We need to be ready for it. We need to be ready for the attack of Satan, that he is trying to undermine God's authority. He highlights his restrictions. He, he, he defies the created order. And here the third thing is that he, he denies the judgment of God. Now, what is our defense against Satan? Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. Our defense against Satan. Perhaps you were thinking about this passage as we were, we were talking earlier. And let me read through, through this passage, and I want you to notice how many times Paul says the phrase, or, or the, a similar phrase, stand firm. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist God, so that you will be able, uh, excuse me, be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so when it comes to Satan's goal, his goal is to create a division to get us to fall. Our goal is to stand firm. That's what this passage makes clear. Our goal is to stand up under trial. Hebrews tells us to persevere, that is, to keep standing all the way till the end. We may fall, but we get up again, like Proverbs talks about. A righteous man falls seven times, but gets up again. Well, how do we do that? First of all, we need to recognize our weakness. We've already seen that Satan is the most powerful creature in the world, that no one can match his strength. So we need to recognize ourselves in relation to Satan and his powers and his wisdom. We are finite and fallen. We don't have the advantages that Adam and Eve had. They were holy at the time. They had a clear command. They, they had all sorts of signs that would have led them to understand that this was sin. And so that means that because we are finite, because we are weak, we need to recognize that God is in a position where He's given us His Word. He's told us what we ought to do. We ought to let God be God and simply submit to Him. Sometimes that's as easy as, as it gets in the Christian life. Simply submitting to God. Now, that doesn't always work out to be that easy when we get to real life, but but really that's what it often comes down to uh, theoretically. Don't stand in judgment of God's Word like Adam and Eve did. Remember last week I said that it was as if they were 
or, or Eve was the judge in a courtroom, and on trial was God's Word. As if God's Word could ever be questioned by us or, or evaluated by us in the sense that we come down on judgment or criticize it. I mean, this is the Word from the Holy God. So we should never stand in judgment of God's Word. Instead, we listen to it and obey it. Because in order for us to pass judgment on God, it would require that we had infinite knowledge, which we do not and never will have. So recognize our weaknesses. We are finite. We are fallen. Next, in order to combat this Satan, in order to stand up under trial, we need to recognize our strengths. And this is what Ephesians 6 talks about. One of the ways that we defend ourselves is obviously by all these pieces of armor that that Paul talks about. But the one I want to focus on is the last one, verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we generally think of this as an offensive weapon. Like we're going to take this sword of the Spirit, this Bible, and we're going to pierce Satan. Ha ha! Right? But notice, all of the other pieces of equipment are defensive weapons. And, if you think about it, with regard to um, a person who has armor and a sword, sword is often used defensively as well, right? And so I think the nature of Paul's exhortation is, what is the goal? Is the goal to, to pierce Satan and get him to fall? That's not our job. Okay, That's what Christ will do, ultimately. He will bruise his, or he will crush his head. Genesis 3.15, we'll see that in a couple weeks. That's Jesus' job, to crush the head of the serpent. That's not our job. So, our goal is not to get Satan to fall or to, to really harm his progress. Our goal is to defend ourselves, to stand firm. And so we do that with all these pieces of armor that we have and also with our swords. It's the Word of God. Remember how Jesus defended himself in his temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Satan comes after him and he says, here's how I think you ought to do to live, to, to act. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. Is that all he did? Was just say, no, I don't want to do that? No, he went back to Scripture and he said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every single time he combats him or defends himself with the Word of God. So this is how we do it. This is how we defend ourselves. This is our strength. It is the Word of God. So that means we need to trust in the Word of God. What Satan is trying to do for you or or with you is he's trying to get you to do the very thing he did with Adam and Eve, and that is to doubt the Word of God. He begins with the question, is God's Word really like that? Is it that restrictive? Is God that good of a God to, to... or, or would God be that bad to allow these things to come into play and and to put these restrictions? No, for us, ignoring God's word is can be habitual, can be very regular. So we have to be careful because sometimes it comes by being apathetic towards His commands, or maybe we overemphasize God's restrictions, or we distort what He has said. Or we speak on behalf of God where He has not spoken. 
And what that leads to, once we ignore God's Word, is it leads to a doubting of God's Word. That's exactly what Eve does in Genesis chapter 3. You know what? How could God be good and command that way? And so we might ask the same question. How could God be good and give me the health that I have or the lack of health? How could God be good and give me the, the, this experience in my life or this tragedy or this job or this spouse or this low dollar amount in my bank account? How could God be good and, and not give me what I want? It seems like God is withholding something from me. So we begin with, the, we begin with this doubting and then we start to doubt God's goodness. When we've doubted His Word and His goodness, it won't be long before we've distorted God's Word and then we abandon Him altogether. We need to take the Word of God very seriously. Moses did. He told parents to make sure that it's a part of every part of your life and that you're teaching it to your children. Every part of your day should include uh, showing them the greatness of God. He said to the kings, the very first thing that you do when you get in the office, Moses said this, was to write down a copy of the scroll for yourself. That is, write down a copy of the entire Pentateuch for yourself, the first five books of the Bible, and then read it every day. Okay, I don't know if he meant to read the entire thing every day or simply read portions of it, but the idea is that it should be central to what you do. And then... Uh, Moses' final plea to the children of Israel is to trust in God's Word and obey it. I give you all sorts of examples to the Old Testament, but we don't have time to do that. What I want you to see is that God's Word is good, that it is right, that you should read and listen to it, and, and listen to it read, and listen to it preached. Learn it. Love it. Obey it. Live it. Submit to it. Because it is the very source of your life. There's nothing better in this life than God's Word for you. It's the only way that we can counteract the appeal of sin. Sin may be very appealing at first glance. It may seem as if it will make us happy. But when we see sin through a biblical lens, we recognize that it only provides satisfaction for a short time and that ultimately it will bring about consequences. We often minimize those consequences either by thinking that we can avoid them or thinking that, you know what, I'm willing to pay because I think the pleasure's that worthwhile. I'm willing to pay those consequences. If only Adam and Eve knew the profound effect that this one sin had on all of history. You think they would have done it the same way? If only they knew that God would have to send His Son to make final payment for that sin that they had committed and the sins that we have been continually committing. If only they knew that the fellowship that they once enjoyed with God was now going to be marred for centuries to come. Perhaps they would have acted differently. But, but our problem is we see ourselves and our circumstances so short-sightedly that we think, it's not that big of a deal for me to, to do this one sin. It's just one. But their sin resulted in God's curse on the earth, resulted in estrangement from God, and we'll see in the weeks ahead 
estrangement from each other. We see the very first murder happen with their two children. And so we need to watch ourselves. Recognize that the power that we have over sin can only come through the Word of God. And so we need to know it and love it and live it. Let me ask you to take your prayer sheets for this evening. And we'll focus our attention on what kind of spiritual and physical needs that we have as a church. Are there any prayer requests or praises that you'd like to add?